What's up, guys? Time for episode three of Believe in Queens. I'm Joe Serralo, joined as always by my man Tyler Ward, and we've got a lot to dive into. The Mets just got swept by the Houston Astros for this second time in a week. The Rangers are coming to City Field for a weekend set. We've got Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom updates. Met fans, is it time to start panicking? Tyler and I are going to get into it all. But first, I want to remind you all that this show is brought to you by our partners at BetOnline. BetOnline.ag, it's the best place to go for your Wimbledon finals odds, baseball odds. We've got two months of uninterrupted baseball between now and the start of NFL football. And speaking of NFL football, you can get your NFL futures odds at BetOnline as well. Just head on over to the website or the app and use the promo code BELIEVE. That's BL. EAV, you can get your 50% welcome bonus there. Bet online, it's where the games begin. But Tyler, we've got to dive into that Houston Astros series. They came to City Field this time, second two games set in a week's time, and the Astros finished the year 4-0 against our Mets. Tyler, I know I know that you've got a big rant in store for everyone, so I'll just uh, I'll defer to you on this one. Yeah, I mean, for all the people that have been listening to the pod that know me from the YouTube channel, Wardy NYM, which is why I know many of you guys are listening on YouTube right now at premiering uh, this Wednesday, I came out this right after game two of the Astros series at home, and I ranted quite a bit. I just had my post-game show be about it's going to be a rant for like 20 to 30 minutes because after losing 9-1 to the way that the Mets did in abysmal fashion, looking like that they were the exact same team that performed in Houston getting swept in those two games, the Mets came out today, and it was a pitching duel like no other that will be deep diving shortly on Taiwan Walker's brilliance, but that was the only upside. The Mets continue to be anemic with their offense. I have so much to say about the Mets here, and should we be concerned as fans? No, I'm going to emphasize that right now. I do not think the sky is falling, regardless of the Braves now only three games back currently at the time recording this of the division lead it's a marathon not a sprint for a reason the Mets control their own destiny they have a great month on schedule here in July coming up which I'm excited to break down here with you Joe but all I know is that the Mets right now there are some clear flaws with this team regardless of facing some stellar pitching they need to be better I expect them to be better and I fully uh anticipate that they will or these next couple days but yeah a lot to say about this Astros series unfortunately a lot more negative than positive yeah, I mean, well, look, let, let, let's take it game by game. Let's start with the first game, a 9-1 loss, essentially their third blowout loss in a row to the Astros. I know one of them was, I believe, 5-3, but they went down 5 nothing in Houston off the bat. And so the Mets found themselves playing catch-up early their first three meetings with Houston. You know, I think that that game is really starting to tell us uh, a little bit about Cookie Carrasco, right? You know, as far as the pitching matchups lined up, everything that we discussed on our last episode on episode two worked out. We got Cookie, we got Taiwan Walker, but Carrasco, you know, I know he's got the wins, right? Eight wins that's tied for third most in the MLB. He's just not the guy, you know, and that's why wins as a stat, you know, Jacob deGrom won what, 10 or 11 games and won the Cy Young. Wins just don't matter a whole lot as a pitching stat because his ERA is now near five. He's been lit up by, you know, a top, two top three team in baseball in consecutive starts. And when you're looking ahead to the postseason, Carrasco's not a guy who probably is going to crack the Mets postseason rotation. He might be a bullpen arm come the postseason. It's ironic he's leading the team in wins. He, he's just not that guy. And he came out after the game, and I really didn't like this, Tyler. He blamed Agreed. his bad start on a missed check swing call on a full count to Altuve to start the game. Said it threw him out of a rhythm, and it ruined him for the whole game. I'm sorry. I understand as a former pitcher, I get being thrown out of your rhythm. I get that sometimes, you know, you don't get a call that you think was clear as day. You should have gotten it. 
it can mess with your head. I fully understand and appreciate that. But the first batter of the game, that, no. I mean, look, if there's guys in scoring position, it's the sixth inning, you're getting tired, that's one thing. First batter of the game, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying Carrasco right now. I don't like where his head's at. That that really rubbed me the wrong way. It's funny, we talked about Adovino and how I loved his post-game comments after you know he gave up the walk-off in Miami on Saturday, on uh, Sunday. rather. These post-game comments from Carrasco, hated them. Mets got embarrassed three games in a row to Houston. Today's loss, as we're recording this Wednesday night, I can actually live with today's loss because Taiwan Walker really just fortified himself as an all-star with that outing today against Verlander. The offense has issues, the bullpen has issues, but Taiwan Walker, I mean, that was, for me, the first eight innings of that game today were just so enjoyable. Okay, so let's go back from the top, right? Cookie, mm-hmm. he comes out and he gives up four earned in the first inning and normal 2021 Carrasco fashion back last week in Houston, right? So we're yeah. like, okay, this was just a rough one for him. Again, we've noticed with Carrasco, especially in the month of June, right? When he's facing some either strong teams or just teams that really have strong lineups. Like you saw him getting hit off a tee from Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, two of the best players in the world. Not going to complain much there because that that is kind of expected to happen even though he's throwing some meatballs right down the plate but what was the issue that we had here especially in this second start against Houston he was doing that same thing right he gave up those four earned runs in that first inning but if you look at his pitch placement it was absolutely atrocious it was all right over the heart of the plate there was really no painted corners and cookie right from the beginning as Buck said in the postgame presser and he's right Cookie didn't have a split from the beginning. And that, like Taiwan Walker, has been an X-factor pitch for him. So when you lose a reliable pitch that you've had in previous starts that have helped propel you so far this year, early on, and you simply don't have command of it, yeah, naturally you're going to get blown up against one of the best teams that's now red hot offensively as of late in the Astros. Got off to a slow start, but over the past month they have really taken things to new, new heights, and the Mets are in part to thank for that. But Cookie going forward, I wholeheartedly agree with you. When I saw his comments, that really hit me a different way because normally I don't care too much about post-game comments. I'm not always looking for them from the players. It is what it is. I know that a lot of them are like robots half the time. They just want to say something quick to get out of there and head home. Why yeah. would you want to do that if you're a player, right? Especially after a tough loss. But Cookie, I think between his emotions and just trying to come up with an excuse I thought was silly. You know, he's someone that everyone, I mean everyone, if you know Cookie Krasko's story, you love the guy. He's the easiest guy to root for 100 especially with how great of a start he had this season but with having such a ailing month of june and now coming out and saying that yeah i was thrown off by that check swing on altuve that as you said the first batter you face i'm sorry but you I, that, that cannot be justified in my opinion that's something where it's like okay if you truly believe that was the x factor and your demise in this start then boy do we have bigger problems right now and going forward so i hope for cookie's case he just tries to brush this one off and move forward because that was such a foolish comment in my opinion even if he truly felt that way that's not something you say and even if it is something that you feel that way you got to get your head out of your ass thinking that way too you can't be doing that with the first barrier you face so in a nutshell, game one was beyond discouraging to me, and that's why I really had my rant after uh, game two, which was, again, today at the time of recording this, because the Mets come out. You have Jeff McNeil back in the lineup. We're feeling good. Even though McNeil didn't love his placement in the lineup, he had an Escobar above him. What did Escobar do? Surprise, surprise, went over for three. That, unfortunately, has been a commonality with someone like him for the majority of the season thus far. But the Mets' offense was just anemic, and when you look at their matchup facing Framir Valdez, 
you can't slight him one bit. He's one of the best pitchers in the AL, AL right now as Southpaw. I told you, Joe, in our previous episode that he is going to be a problem. What do you do? Goes eight scoreless, six hits, zero earned runs, two walks, five strikeouts. I mean, just made the Mets look absolutely silly. And it was discouraging knowing that the Mets had an off day, were back at City Field, and looked the exact same, no different with one McNeil back in the lineup and two at home at City Field where they have been a really strong team for the most part this season. So all that together, wasn't happy about it. And then to add insult to injury, one of today's hot topics that you saw from the title, the thumbnail here on YouTube, is the future in the Mets' bullpen potentially the next couple days because the man who, in my personal opinion, should have been out of the bullpen's rotation from his last outing in Houston comes out, and I feels like Buck was waving the white flag in this one, throws him in after Carrasco's done, after giving up six earned and not even five innings pitch. And what does Shreve do? Only gets one measly out, gives up three earned runs. This guy, I don't care that he gives up a bomb to arguably the best hitter in baseball right now and Alvarez. It doesn't matter. This is a guy that's supposed to come in and get lefties out, and that's the exact thing that he has not been able to do this season. When you have a roughly 900 OPS, for opponent hitter, hitters that are lefties when you are supposed to be a lefty specialist and you have upwards of a six and a half year ray and your advanced numbers don't look good at all right now. I don't know how you can further justify chasing Shreve in this bullpen, but again, we'll expand on that further and not trying to get on a tangent right now. The upsides, however, from game one, I want to know your thoughts on this, Joe, because you've been advocating Trevor Williams really strong in the pen, right? And we saw it transpire. You said it best. Maybe we're going to see Cookie and then Williams here in one of these games against the Astros, and you were 1,000% right. Cookie comes in and gets him, uh, pardon me, Williams, rather, gets 2.1 squirrels for the Mets. Medina eats innings. Adonis Medina, what a godsend he's been at times for the Mets. Had that massive save against the Dodgers in L.A. for the series split. Now he gets another big out in here going to squirrels against this Astros team that, again, has been red hot. So there were some positives to take away from the bullpen front, but also surely some negatives. And in game two, it would look, Justin Verlander, this guy hasn't pitched in two years off of Tommy John, was able to avoid all the scandals regarding the Astros, even though that, yes, he actually was, hint, hint, in case you guys don't know, one of the most cheatiest pitchers in all of baseball prior to, of course, his Tommy John. But we'll talk about that another day. Um, no less, Verlander at the age of 39 is still a bona fide Hall of Famer, having a Cy Young caliber season, and carves up the Mets, giving up only two hits and eight innings, an absolute stud. I'm not surprised that the Mets got carved up by great pitching. However, I am further discouraged by the fact that when you basically get shut out in two games, and I'm not calling James McCann RBI's walk there in the eighth in game one, a, a actual run scored. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it. Um, it, it just definitely hurt after Tywan Walker had a start that you normally get from a Jacob DeGrom, for instance, for a long time as Mets fans. Gives you a quality outing. Arguably his best of the year, 7.1 innings pitch, four hits, zero earned runs, two walks, three strikeouts, utilizing that splitter and slider beautifully like he has done so well for the majority of the season. But then absolutely nothing offensively. They had something going the first Nimmo with a leadoff double, and they can drive him in. As soon as that happened, Verlander settled in, and the Mets could never at any point in the game muster any type of reasonable offense, which ended up being their demise with Drew Smith and blowing it there. Even though that, yes, the game isn't on Drew Smith, it's on the offense. Drew Flo, though, who struggled with the home run ball over the past month plus, gives up a bomb to 100 average hitter and Castro for the Astros, his first multi-hit game of the season. Enter the game 8 for 77 with runners in scoring position with one measly RBI. Gets a two-run shot there in the eighth. And, um, yeah, that just did it for the or the ninth, pardon me. I'm getting them confused. Either way, the offense was the biggest problem in this one, and it's definitely something that needs to change as we enter the Rangers series. But, Joe, what's your thoughts on everything that I just rambled about there? 
Yeah, so I mean, look, obviously, you know, uh, yesterday's game, Tuesday's game was a disaster. Let's look at today, right? Wednesday's game. I I mean, like I said earlier, it was a thing of beauty for the first eight innings, right? Everything that we saw from Walker just, you know, further cemented that he deserves to be an all-star for the second straight season, both of his seasons as a New York Met. And Justin Verlander, I mean, I'm guessing based off of your comments about him that I like him a lot more than you do. He's one of my favorite non-Mets that I've watched. You know, I consider 2005 the first year that I really, you know, became a baseball fan. I was seven years old. I started to learn more about the game, follow other teams, not just the Mets. And that was Verlander's rookie season. So I've gotten to see Verlander. Really, his entire career has coincided with my entire fandom. And it's pretty cool because, you know, we're reaching that age where it's like the guys that we first remembered watching, yeah. Yachty, Pujols, Wainwright, Verlander, these guys are retiring. Soon there won't be too many guys who are playing when we can say, hey, the first year I watched baseball, he was in the league. So to see Verlander still, unlike Yachty, unlike Pujols, to see him still performing at the level he was performing at, at the peak of his career, to me, it's really cool. So getting to watch him throw eight shutout against Walker, seven and a third shutout, I mean, that was just an old-fashioned, quick, fun, great baseball game. You know, Edwin Diaz coming in in the eighth, first yeah. off, I, I have no problem with the way that Buck used him. I mm-hmm. love that Buck brought in his best reliever for the most high-leverage situation. Diaz was great, shutting the door with a couple strikeouts there. And then in the ninth, you know, I mean, look, would I have rathered have seen Adam Adovino there? Yes, I would have. But Drew Smith's been great. I mean, you know, he had a, a, he had a scoreless April. In the month of May, he struggled a bit. ERA in May was four and a half. But in June, up until you know, up until this this outing against Houston, nine innings, one earned. It's an ERA of one. But you know, that's where Smith has struggled. And you mentioned it. He's prone to the long ball. He's got a great fastball, a great curveball. But sometimes either the fastball is a little too flat, or he just hangs the curve up there, and he becomes prone to giving up a home run. So you know that's just kind of what you're going to have to deal with with Drew Smith. I still think he's one of the most effective relievers in this bullpen. I still don't have an issue with him. Agreed. But you know, the really tough part for me to swallow is that it came up against a guy who's hitting a buck oh four on the season uh, and who didn't have a home run yet this year. I mean, Castro's had years where you know his offensive productivity has been great. This year is not one of them. He was hitting one oh four, no home runs. That's the part that kills me. If Alvarez beats you, that's one thing, even though I know he was out of the game at that point. But if Bregman beats you, if Altuve beats you, to let Jason Castro beat you, that to me is the part that I struggle with. That's the part that hurts. But ultimately, my man, it's on the offense today. You know, you you can talk about the bullpen and Jason Shreve. We'll talk about Shreve. I mean, unfortunately, three episodes in, we're mentioning him him every episode. But today's loss really just on the offense. You know, the game was nothing, nothing going into uh, into the top of the ninth. So... That, that's on the out. Yeah, and that's a big thing with the offense, right? Because they went off to this completely torrid start this year, right? Mm-hmm. Exceeding expectations, getting guys that are playing better than even what you would have expected in the likes of Marcana, for instance. Even though that Canna, yes, he struggled over this past week or so, but he's been, for the most part, a 300 hitter until this past week, which has been the worst week in Mets baseball this season. And guys, I'm telling you right now, the fact that this is the worst week thus far is a good thing, knowing that yeah. we're only at the halfway mark of this season. Trust me, still in first, worst week, I'll take that. Things could be a lot worse right now, I assure you, with all the adversity they face. But going back, Canna is a guy that's ex- exceed expectations among many others. And for the Mets to really really come in now in June, knowing that they had a brutal schedule, arguably their toughest month of the season outside of what August will entail with facing the Braves, a boatload, the Yankees, the Dodgers. That's not going to be a fun month schedule wise, but hopefully again, the Mets really get on a roll and you up to that point. But point is, is that 
the Mets, they were destined to really get humbled a bit. But the biggest gripe that I've had, and I've told you this as well, and this is not a long-term concern for me, but it's a rightful criticism, with, especially with the Mets in the month of June that we've seen, the large portion of losses that they faced were completely lopsided in the sense that you had no pitching, and this one directly in hand with the first half of the month, Chris Bassett still not being on the money with his game, Cookie Carrasco being completely inconsistent in June as he had a 6.37 year range June, as a matter of fact, regardless of the fact that he had a good win-loss record. And then you also have guys like having Trevor Williams having to be out there. Not Again, not having Scherzer, not having DeGrom was always going to hurt the Mets. And Tyler McGill, too, again, is out for an extended period of time. So, the Mets haven't had the pitching a lot. The bullpen hasn't been great, but they haven't had any offense. And that was something that they surely did have in the months of April and May. They were able to overcome adversity, right? Yes, that win against the Phillies 8-7 to was amazing, but they had to come back to get there, right? They were still dealing with some adversity, were giving up a good amount of runs and games, but were able to overcome them because they had this, you know, never-say-die mentality until the last out. Now, do I think that mentality has changed? No, not at all. And we do have to factor in the likes of Lindor, Alonzo, McNeil, Nimmo, and um, and others, and Marte, that missed multiple games here in the month of June. That has been factors, but still not enough, in my opinion, to truly justify how lopsided the majority of the Mets' losses have been here in June. And that's something that they need to take as a learning curve to hopefully be better on the months going forward. Because something also to keep in mind is that all these losses, for the most part, where they were lopsided, happen against the better teams in either the NL or just baseball. So right now, as we're learning at this juncture, is that the Mets are not faring to the degree that we would like to see them with being assumably a top five, top six team in baseball. They're not there right now. I expect them to be once they get healthier. But this is a learning curve. And moral of the story is as frustrated as I have been with this anemic offense and the lack of pitching, I'm glad that these things are happening now and not until after the trade deadline where the Mets completely fall flat on their face, have no way on trying to combat the current issues that they have in this roster. Yeah, look, man, I'm really far from pressing the panic button. And you mentioned June and the strength of schedule, right? Let's look at June from a macro perspective. I mean, yes, as of now, it looks like August is going to be a tough month. But all in all, we're halfway through the season months-wise, three months down, three to go. And in the month of June, the Mets had the toughest strength of schedule in baseball. Toughest, bar none. They still managed to go 13 and 12. Now, is that as good as a team that, you know, is 20 games over 500 expects to go? No, it's a bit of a step back. But at the end of the day, they still went 13 and 12 when they had the toughest schedule in all of the MLB this month. So I'll take it. This is a team that historically, or at least in our lifetimes, has stunk in the month of June. I believe this was their first winning June since 2012. So first time in a decade that the Mets have had a winning record in the month of June. They and they had the, the toughest swoon, I would say. Yeah, they, yeah. and they had the toughest it. strength of schedule. I mean, look at what they did, right? They had a 10-game, what, 12-day West Coast road trip. Yep. Dodgers, Padres, Angels, split with the Dodgers, took two from the Angels, and lost two against the Padres. But not only have the Mets been, you know, had that pitching deficit, which they've had all season with, you know, Scherzer only making eight starts to Grom, obviously not being back yet. But don't forget in that Padres series, they were without Marte and Alonzo for two games, right? They've lost both of those guys. They've lost McNeil at times in the month of June. So not only are the Mets, you know, can people say like, hey, look, at we're winning without Jake, without Max, like we've been saying all season. But there were points in June where they had to play not only without their two best starters, two Cy Young Award winners, but without Alonzo, Marte, McNeil. McCann, say what you want. The guy offensively has been a liability since he signed with the Mets. Defensively, though, I mean, 
he, pitchers when McCann's back there before he came back from his injury had a 2.6 ERA. I don't know what that number's changed since McCann's been back. Obviously, it went up with uh, Cookie's performance the other day against Houston. But, you know, McCann makes a difference being in that lineup. So the, the Mets, Scherzer and DeGrom aside, have battled a lot in the month of June. And I'm not pressing the panic button because the Rangers come to town this weekend. And then it's the Reds. It's the Cubs. It's the Marlins. I, I mean, going into the All-Star break, the Mets finally have one of the easiest schedules. They went from the toughest schedule in baseball in the month of June to now July is their second easiest month. September will be their easiest month. So, you know, just take care of business. You know, people, they say, oh, well, you got to beat the good teams. Well, no one's criticizing the Yankees for sweeping the Oakland Athletics, right? You got to beat the bad teams too. So take care of business now. Yeah, take care of business indeed. And that's going to be huge for the Mets, right? In July, as of now, they currently are going to be playing 17 games against teams with a below 500 record and have eight games against teams with an above 500 record. So ideally, you'd imagine that the Mets can come in July in the best case scenario with Scherzer back in this rotation, hopefully starting Monday. That will begin into a second on his update from how his rehab start went tonight. And along with DeGrom, hopefully best case scenario will be right after the All-Star break. But to get these guys back will be massive. And now it's going to be crucial crucial for the Mets to really look at if we're going to do comparisons because I know Mets fans have been so cooped up about the standings early on this year you look at the Atlanta Braves they have been thriving the Braves have been playing good baseball even after their 13-14 game win streak against all abysmal teams but what were the Braves able to do from playing all those bad teams in a row they were able to ride momentum against some of the better teams in baseball right they won a series against the Giants Lost one against the Dodgers, but they are now winning one, uh, just won one, as a matter of fact, over this past hour against the Phillies. So they're beating good teams now, and it'll be important for the Mets, starting with this Rangers series, then on to Cincinnati eventually, Marlins, Chicago, etc., to beat up on these teams, hopefully get a serious sweep here or there because the Mets haven't done much of that this year and really just ride this wave into what is going to be an unbelievably difficult schedule in the month of August. So Take advantage of the opportunities given to you. That's what I always say. If you can do that, then by all means, you control your own destiny, right? But, Joe, let's pivot into this Rangers series because this is going to be a fun one. I think this will be interesting for the Mets. Again, they get an off day, which is when you guys are listening to this podcast, either here on YouTube or wherever you get your pods. And always make sure to rate, review, subscribe to the new Mets podcast out there from the Believe Network. Greatly appreciate folks. Stay tuned for great content weekly after every series. And in a couple episodes, we will, in fact, be having a former New York Met as our third and final co-host. So a lot of exciting stuff coming, I assure you. But getting into this Texas series, the Rangers are 36 and 38 currently on the season. I don't know if they played a game or not. If you want to update me, go ahead um, tonight at least. But the Rangers, they have played subpar. They've had a solid June. They've been up and down for the most part. Um, but this is still a team that by all means the Mets need to be beating up on. And anything less than a series victory will not suffice, in my opinion. They need to really make a statement here at home, no less, against the Rangers team. When, if, correct me if I'm wrong. When was the last time that the Texas Rangers have even been at City Field? I feel like it's been quite a while, has it not? Jeez. I mean, I was there for a 4th of July game years ago, close to 10 years ago. Jim Joyce, actually. <laughs> you know, and, and this is why I'm glad we're doing the pod, because I've been to so many friggin' Met games in my life that I'm glad stories like this get to come up. The last, I don't know if it's the last time the Rangers were at City Field, but about 10 years ago, a little less, they played each other on the 4th of July. Jim Joyce was umpiring that game, and I was sitting right by the tunnel on the third base side, which is where, you know, the grounds crew runs in and out. It's where the umpires go in and out. Okay. And after the game... Joyce is walking by and, you know, obnoxious 15, we'll say 15-year-old me, goes, hey, Joyce, how's Galarraga doing? 
And there's plexiglass separating that tunnel from the fans. And Joyce punched the plexiglass and flips me off and goes, go fuck yourself, kid. <laughs> I couldn't believe. I got Jim Joyce to tell me to go fuck myself. I was like, the happiest guy in the world. I was like, this is amazing. That's hilarious. Uh, but that might be the last time. <laughs> that might be the last time the Rangers have been to City Field. It's been a while. To give you an idea on how long it's been, the New York Rangers have played in City Field sooner than what the Texas Rangers have. If we go back to the Winter Classic, in which I, I was in attendance for. Yeah, yeah that, that was that was a good one a couple of years ago against the Sabres. But going back now, this Rangers series, when we look at the pitching matchup, it's, it's very interesting, especially because there is one starter in there that you may just see me talk about on my channel a couple hours from now at the time of listening to this podcast regarding potential starting pitching targets. But before we get to him, let's talk about game one and the, the expected stars. You have Glenn Otto and his, I believe, second MLB season this year, the 26-year-old right-hander currently repping a 4-3-1 and loss record with a 5.31 ERA. And the month of June, he's only had two starts, and he's been absolutely abysmal, giving up eight earned runs and in seven innings. So definitely a starter that has not been a consistent starter for the Rangers, either for injury issues or just because of injuries, injuries to the rotation, rather. Not exactly sure what his status has been. No less, definitely a guy that the Mets need to take advantage of, and anything less will surely frustrate me as a fan that needs this offense to turn it around. Uh, but their, mat their matchup against Chris Bassett. Bassett has now given the Mets a couple quality outings in a row now. I believe two, if not three, is what Bassett has done for the Mets now. And 6-5-1 and five, one loss record with just over four-year Ray. Loving what I'm seeing from Bassett lately. He's got his arsenal working. That six-pitch uh, pitch mix looks solid in Miami against the Marlins. Looks solid against the Marlins at City Field. And I believe he looks solid as well, if I'm if my memory's not mistaken. He did pitch against the Brewers, right? So uh, overall, Bassett, I've liked what I've seen from him over these past couple starts after what was a rough month between the second half of May and the first half of June. And then we get to the game two starters, and this is an interesting one. It's going to be Martin Perez. Martin Perez is a fun name to think about. Keep an eye on him, Mets fans, because I'm curious what the Rangers' status will become the trade deadline, but they have a veteran southpaw, 31 years of age, that is having a phenomenal season. Currently repping a 2.22 ERA, a 6-2 win-loss record, and surely would benefit any contending team looking to bolster their starting pitching depth by this year's trade deadline. However, in June, he did have his worst month of the season, a just under four-year array, 13 earned runs and 30 innings to be exact. And he's expected matchup as long as Buck wants to give him an extra day's rest based on the timing right now. David Pearson, David, who had his best outing of this season, you could rightfully argue, only giving up two earned and seven innings against the Miami Marlins in that unfortunate loss the other day this past Sunday. Pearson, 4-1 win-loss record with 3.10 year rate. The battle of the Southpaws would truly be entertaining, so hopefully we see that. And Game 3 of the series finale is going to be John Gray, first-year Texas Rangers signed from the Colorado Rockies this past year. In case you guys don't know, the Mets really like John Gray, and they actually pursued him heavily at last year's trade deadline, along with Trevor Story for a potential package deal. But the Rockies, for whatever reason, decide to be stubborn and say, hey, we're not going to do that. We're going to hang tight to these guys, even though they let both walk in for agency. I can't answer as to why they did that, but they did that, right? They didn't even give Gray a qualifying offer, so I don't know what the idea was there. No less, John Gray has definitely been a better starter for Texas than what he was to begin the year with a 4-3 and win-loss record of 3.89 year Ray. However, in the month of June, it's been his best month to date for the Rangers, giving opponent buying average OPS, I should say, of a .541. So definitely his best numbers over this past month of starts. Uh, facing off against, as expected, Cookie Carrasco. Cookie looking to bounce back off uh, a really rough month that we saw there in June, struggling with his arsenal. Let's see if he can step up against a lesser opponent in the Rangers. 8-4 and four on the year. 
4.85 year Ray. But just as we know with Jacob DeGrom, something needs to be said that wins loss record means absolutely nothing in today's game. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the pitching matchups. Let's dive in. I want to actually go in reverse here and start with Sunday because you mentioned sure. that the Mets front office likes John Gray. The Mets lineup likes John Gray. John Gray against the Mets in five career starts. He's one and two with an 8.9 ERA. Now, look, I know you know that ERA is always going to be inflated when you play at Coors Field. And looking at this, only two of his three, uh, two of his five starts rather against the Mets have come at Coors Field. The Mets have shelled him no matter what ballpark they're in. I'm, I'm checking right now on the earned runs. And, you know, there's a seven earned run performance at Coors Field. There's also an eight earned run performance at City Field. So the Mets have just had John Gray's number. They've shelled him five starts against the Mets, and he has not fared well, only winning one of them. I can't wait to see him on Sunday because if there's any guy that Cookie Carrasco needs to be matched up against, it's a guy who the Mets have potential to win a 9-7 game over, right? Because Cookie's been getting shelled lately. The Rangers hit the ball better in June than they have at all this season. Marcus Simeon finally woke up. He's showing a semblance of a pulse. So Sunday, I love that matchup because if Cookie's going to get hit, John Gray almost sure as shit is going to get hit as well. Now backing it up into Saturday, Peterson Perez. Love this matchup. You know, Perez is actually coming off one of his worst starts of the year. Went up against the KC Royals, got the win because Texas was hitting the ball. They won the game 10-4, but Perez still in six innings gave up four earned against the Royals lineup. Now, the Royals put the ball in play really well, but they still don't hit really well. They don't knock in a lot of runs. They don't score much, and he gave up four runs in six innings against them. So, you know, the Mets, they've struggled mightily, like you mentioned, against Southpaws on the season. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Perez doesn't have overpowering stuff, but he dots corners. He pulls strings on breaking balls. It's going to be, you know, it's no easy task going up against him. But at the same time, I'm looking at this and I'm like, all right, we've got a damn good lineup. Starling Marte, Pete Alonso, talking right-handed hitters, right? Lindor from the right side of the plate. And even though Perez is having a great year, this is still a guy who coming into the season on his career had an ERA well north of four. So at one point, you know, at what point does 2022 Perez combat career Perez? Which, which guy do we get on Saturday? We didn't get 2022 Perez against the Royals earlier this week. I I think that's still a winnable game. I think David Peterson over his last two, three starts has actually been more impressive than Martin Perez. And then Friday, Friday's the game. You got to win. You got to start the series off on the right note and the three game losing streak. First three game losing streak of the season, by the way, Mets have been so great at stopping it after two. Got to end the three game skid. Got to open the series with a win. It makes winning the series, which like you said, is a must, makes it that much easier. And this might actually be the pitcher's duel of the weekend. I mean, you've got, you know, Perez and Peterson, ERA-wise, they match up the best against one another. But, you know, Perez, like I said, he just got hit pretty well against the Royals. It's Otto in this game who his home and road splits have been so drastic, but most pitchers do way better at home unless you play for the Rockies. In Otto's case, He's got an ERA of over eight at home in Arlington this season. On the road, ERA is just two and a half. And then Bassett, who has pitched so much better at home than on the road, his ERA is over two runs better at home, just a shade over three. On the road, it's over five. So these are two guys who are pitching in their element. For Otto, it's on the road. For Bassett, it's at home. Bassett's striking out guys a ton this season. This, to me, is going to be a really interesting pitcher's duel. And in Otto's case, you know, the Mets luckily have a day off for their lineup. But if I'm Otto, I'm like, wow, these guys have to be shook. They just scored one run in two games. They've scored three runs in their last three games. And, you know, for Otto, 
maybe he's able to ride some momentum against the Mets lineup that could be overthinking, could be in their own, you know, could be in their own heads three runs in the last three games. So this might actually be the best pitchers duel of the weekend, despite Perez and Peterson, you know, having the lower ERAs and the better numbers going on Saturday. Would I be surprised that the Mets do not perform well against a pitcher that they haven't seen one before and two really don't have a great playbook on that's young and in the, newer in the game? No, I wouldn't. As much as I hope that they absolutely jump on auto early, like they have famously done all this season, right? The Mets have been known when they are when their offense is locked in, they're scoring a run guaranteed in the first two innings. If the Mets don't yeah. do that against Otto, then I think Otto is going to cruise and go probably five solid innings at minimum. And Bassett, same thing. I do believe Bassett's going to have a strong outing here against the Texas Rangers team that he has good familiarity with. Let's not forget, Bassett's coming from the Oakland A's. Knows those AL teams better than he does know the NL teams up until this season. So it's definitely another factor in that matchup, which could, of course, favor this being more of a pitching duel than potentially, say, being, you know, a hitter's box type thing. But one thing I did want to mention about Martin Perez before we kind of wrap things up on this Texas Rangers uh, series preview is that if you let me know if you agree with this, Joe, he really feels like he is the 2022 version of Kyle Gibson. Let's not forget Kyle Gibson last year for the Rangers was an absolute stud, had a sub two year Ray for the first half of the year. He was in trade the Philadelphia Phillies and continued to be a solid starter, but his second half numbers were not the same as his first half numbers. Kyle Gibson, who entered last season with around a career four year Ray or so, just miraculously had something new in his game and in his arsenal and was carving up hitters a lot, especially in the first half. Now we see another starter, another veteran that very well could be dealt this year by the Rangers. This time, Martin Perez, again, with a very strong first half from what we've seen. We'll see how he does against the Mets and down the stretch this year. But kind of bizarre. Two years in a row now, the Rangers out of nowhere get a veteran starter that they did not have expectations of pitching to the magnitude that they have. And maybe they're going to get a nice little pretty penny out of them should they deal them by this year's trade deadline. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's an interesting way to look. Right now, I can't pin the Rangers as a team that's looking to sell only because, I mean, look at how much money they invested in that infield, right? Yeah. Simeon and Seager both got huge contracts. They're 36 and 38. They're just two games under 500 in an American league where, you know, you might be able to get that sixth and final added wild card spot by being barely over 500, right? So I wouldn't say the Rangers are going to be as eager to sell this year as they were last year just Agreed. yet. But, you know, when you, when you look at, at Bassett and you mentioned his AL West experience, it's interesting because you look at Simeon and Seager, and these are brand new additions to the Rangers. So these are not guys that Bassett has really faced a ton. Both have three at-bats against Bassett. Both, though, are 0 for 3. But it's Adalas Garcia, who's 0 for 11 against Bassett. You know, the only guy really in this lineup who's had any success against Chris Bassett is Cole Calhoun, who's 4 for 12. So it's moderate success in a still rather small sample size. But Chris Bassett against these Rangers, 57 at-bats, only seven hits. He's got a 123 opponent batting average against the Rangers. Ooh. And exactly. I mean, with those kind of dominant numbers and the way he's pitched at home this season, you know, I, I think Otto scares me a bit more so the Mets scare me. The Mets lineup scares me because I'm wondering if they're getting in their own heads. They scare me more than Otto does. If he can capitalize on a lineup that's only scored three runs in three games, then this could be a real pitcher's duel. But this team has shown the ability, which you need in baseball, to have a short memory, be on to the next one. I think the off day will help. And if they move on and move ahead, I mean, they could bust this one wide open early. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's got the most pitchers dual potential out of all three games. But I think the advantage, especially with that history, Bassett and the current Rangers, seven for 57 off of them. I think the advantage is for the Mets in this one, especially game one. 
Yeah, all buys aside, if I'm a betting man, I'm taking Seabass every day of the week there to yeah. open up this series against the Texas Rangers. So, Joe, now let's pivot into some key updates regarding the two aces that are out for the Mets right now and Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom. Because as things currently stand today, earlier today, at the time of recording this, Jacob deGrom finished a 27-pitch his final live bullpen, his third and final, more than likely, with the Mets facing live batters. Buck Showalter said he'll provide an update tomorrow, so that should be technically today at the time of recording um, that you guys are listening, at least. But DeGrom, as long as there's no setbacks, his next step now is quite simply to begin his rehab starts. So Jake, who was expected from Buck a little while ago to go between three and five rehab starts before his ultimate and long away return to this Mets rotation should begin over this next week. All things considered that nothing drastically changes with Buck's mind because Jake has progressed. No regression from everything that's been reported. So that's a phenomenal sign from the Mets that, again, are looking to have DeGrom back for a couple starts at minimum prior to this year's trade deadline, which will be huge in helping them evaluate what they want to do move-wise as we enter the month of August eventually. But then you look at Max Scherzer. Max had his second and final rehab start with the Binghamton Rumble Ponies today. He went just over four innings, gave up a couple hits, two earned runs, eight strikeouts, but the most important number of all, in my opinion, is the fact that he went up to 80 pitches. Max said in his post game tonight that he is ready to go. He does not expect any more rehab starts. So we... At this juncture, unless, again, Buck changes his mind, should have Max back four days from now, which is going to, of course, be Monday, the first game of a three-game set in Cincinnati against those Reds. And while that is, of course, not a hitter-friendly ballpark, it's Mad Max effing Scherzer. I'm pumped up. I cannot wait to see this man back in the rotation. And, yeah, it, it couldn't come soon enough. So, thankfully, Max looks ready to go locked in. And I'm just chomping at the bit, and I know that will expand on him a little bit more in our next episode after the Rangers series because that is right before the Reds one will begin. But any further thoughts there on Jake and Max's progression here, Joe? Yeah, I mean, look, quick thoughts on each. When it comes to Scherzer, a little disappointed about the setback. I know that, you know, an extra day of rest can't hurt. But just looking at their schedule, having him debut Monday at Cincinnati instead of Sunday at home against Texas Looks like now he'll miss the Braves series going into the All-Star break. And that's the only series against the team above 500 that the Mets have between now and the All-Star game. Was really hoping to have Scherzer, you know, two, three starts in, in time for that Braves set right now. And things could always change, you know, depending on off days and stuff. Uh, although it doesn't look like they have any off days between Friday and that Braves series. Yeah, it looks they like don't the Mets, have any off days. They're of playing course, a lot. They're playing a lot. Plenty of off days the past week plus, but none yeah, no. when it kind of matters most. I know. Four off days in the last two weeks. Now they're not going to have one between uh, between Friday and the All-Star break. So Scherzer likely going to miss the Braves series. That stinks. But hey, you know what? Three games against an above 500 team. It doesn't matter who's pitching. You got to go win two of them. With Jake, I think it's really important to have him back right out of the All-Star break. So I'm hoping that's the case get him like three rehab starts between now and then, because when we get back from the all-star break, my man, we have got a weekend set with the Padres. We're off Monday. And then, I mean, how cool would it be? Have Jacob DeGrom debut in that two game set against the Yankees. Oh, in, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 1000% going to be there. <laughs> that, yeah. That's what's going to happen. If that should line up. Yeah. So with the Padres and Yankees opening up our, you know, second half of the season, of course, the first half is always like 90 something games. So it's not really even halves, mm -hmm. but Padres and Yanks open up the quote-unquote second half of the season. Got to have Jake ready to go for that. Scherzer hopefully will be three, four starts in. Plus, he'll have that prolonged all-star break off after those three or four starts. So, you know, honestly, man, look, there's always obviously unforeseen events. There's always speed bumps. But if things do work out as planned throughout the month of July with Scherzer getting a few starts in before the all-star break and DeGrom coming back out of the all-star break, 
then, you know, I'm happy with where the Mets are at. Even though their lead's down to three games, some people are pressing the panic button. You know, the Mets could be, although with their easy schedule, they shouldn't lose any ground to Atlanta, but they could even lose a little more ground. And I'll be okay the way things are at, considering, you know, how many players we've been missing all year. Yeah, I think a perfect way, this is kind of pivotal a little bit further on, should fans worry about the stats and Mets right now? Look, does it suck that, yes, the Mets went from having a 10-plus game lead on Atlanta to now shrinking to three games and maybe even less over the next couple of days? Yes, that always sucks. There's no denying that. But it's really important once more, and I cannot emphasize this enough, that this is happening to the Mets now, okay? If this was happening to the Mets, again, down the stretch in the past, in the final month and a half or so of the season, then I think we have huge problems. It's important to ride momentum, especially down the stretch in the playoffs. That's how most teams have success. That's that's directly in hand with how the Braves won last year, directly in hand with how the Nationals won a couple of years prior. So those things are important. And when looking at the Mets and their scheduling, Everything benefits them. They control their own destiny. And again, look for that. The Braves, the Mets have 15 games against them this season. Okay. If the Mets are the better team between the two, then odds are they're going to be in first when it matters most by the end of the season. So even if they do a little seesaw, I'm not concerned right now. What I'm focused on the most is especially trade deadline and post trade deadline. That is the knit and gritty of the season. That is what's going to make or break the Mets, not just for the 2022 regular season, but for whatever postseason contention can bring, assuming that they are locked in and make it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So look, you know, I, I don't think fans should worry. I don't think you do either. Let's dive into what changes need to be made, though, because there, there definitely are some changes that need to be made. And you know, you, you alluded to it really early in the show when we were talking about the Houston series and, of course, his pivotal role in stinking up the field in two games against Houston in the last week, uh, week and a day or two. Jason Shreve. To me, not a lot of changes need to be made on this team. That's the big one. He can't be a part of this team moving forward. It was great to start the year. I believe his first 10 innings were scoreless, maybe even his first 10 and two-thirds. Since then, ERA of about 10, had an ERA over 7 in the month of May. ERA of nearly 11 in the month of June. Chase and Shreve's got to go. He's not getting lefties out. He's not getting anybody out. To me, it's that simple. Tyler, I know you're high on some other bullpen options we have. Forget externally, but right from within. So what do you think would help this bullpen? I think what would help this bullpen right now, because I know every Mets fan and their mother wants the Mets to make moves, right? They want to, them to add on a reliever or two via trade or whatever. Same thing with a starting pitcher and a bat. We will get there. I promise you, Mets fans, the Mets will address this roster, but they are not going to act desperate. They feel they do not need to. So do not expect anything drastic until really the week of the trade deadline, if I had to assume at this juncture. However, internally, the Mets do have some options. And I think something that we're coming to a quick realization of is how much does it really matter if you are a righty or a lefty pitcher in this bullpen, right? Because the Mets have Joelle, they have Shreve. Their goal, their role has been to get lefties out. And both of them, not to the same length, but both of them have struggled to do just that. And Shreve, as I emphasized earlier, when you have a 300-plus average and roughly just under 900 OPS for any lefty that you're seeing overall this year, that's a problem that needs a change. Shreve on the year as we speak right now, Joe has a 6.58 year rate. When you look at his advanced numbers, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. The expected year rate is just over four. So it definitely helps him. It's basically a two-run difference for sure. But there's still nothing pretty about his advanced numbers. This is a guy that has been in leverage situations for the Mets that I have not agreed with Buck's decision-making on, especially really throughout the majority of June. I've not liked what I've seen because we saw some red flags that we saw with Shreve there in May. I've seen even more here to a farther extent that we could have ever imagined here in June. 
But there are some guys that stand out. And I think the guy, if we're going to base things on lefties, there's one lefty that the Mets have that I think is deserving of at least getting a shot because how can it hurt at this point, right, with all the struggles that they've had with their pen? And that's veteran in Alex, Alex Claudio. Now, if you guys don't know, Alex Claudio is with the Mets, battled for a bullpen spot in spring training, lost it to Chase and Shreve. Shreve signed a minor league deal with the Mets and got with the roster right away. But Claudio, in 22 innings currently at the time of recording this for the Syracuse and AAA, has been pretty solid, a 3.63 array, a 4.28 FIP. Not, again, not pretty numbers, but one thing that does stand out to me is his low walk rate currently. Only has surrendered 1.61 walks per nine innings versus Shreve, who's upwards of four right now. And I yeah. think that's important because when you look at the Mets and their bullpen struggles, that has been directly in hand with a lack of control. Same, not just for Joelle, he's been a big factor. Joelle's been getting outs. He just has really struggled with his command. Adam Adovino, walk rate has still been an issue by far as big as gripe. And then you're seeing also with Chase and Shreve. So if you can really lessen that load, you do it. Should you part with Shreve and either DFA, which I truly believe the Mets should and hopefully will do, Sooner than later, Claudio deserves, in my opinion, at least a cup of coffee. Just see what you have. Same thing that they've done with Yon Lopez and others of recent. But Colin Holderman's a big guy. I know that yeah. you want to expand on him a little bit more. But Colin Holderman, guys, in case you weren't watching spring training, this guy was an absolute stud. He's a former sixth, seventh round draft pick a couple years ago. Six foot seven, 240 plus pound right hander. He can pump upwards of 99 and even touch 100 at times on the gun. Has a nasty slider. And he has been rock solid for the Mets. Quite literally up until that Padres disaster of a series there in San Diego. Well, 11.1 innings pitch. He has a 3.18 year ray. But what I love about Holderman is that he has really command the zone. When looking at the advanced numbers, the stuff that he controls more, he has been far and away the best pitcher among all options that the Mets have right now in AAA. Has a 2.53 expected year ray and a 1.72 FIP. That's phenomenal. And his has 14 strikeouts and 11.1 innings pitch. He's over 10 strikeouts per nine right now. Again, small sample size, but Holderman, he has the makings, in my opinion, to really be a high leverage guy and potentially even best case scenario, a guy that could be a setup man for the Mets. Should they have struggles with the health of Trevor May still down the stretch and inconsistencies with guys like Seth Lugo and or Adam Adovino? I think there's a lot of upside with uh, someone like Colin Holderman. And then Steven Nagosik as well. 12.2 innings has been solved for the Mets, has a sub one year ray, however, has been bailed out plenty. Because when looking at the advanced numbers, a 4.23 expected year ray, a 5.11 FIP. Uh, what I know is that out of all the options the Mets have right now, Colin Holderman is my guy. He can get both lefties and righties out. So why not at this point bring him back up with the team after just coming off of his injury and get Chase and Shreve the hell out of here? I'm sorry, Chase, and nothing personal, but you do not belong in a MLB caliber bullpen. Yeah, man. I'm with you 100%. First off, I, I love the Holderman love. I, I mean, you know, you said a lot, you know, especially with his heat and this combination of great fastball and just that hard biting slider. It's really just, you know, something that's uh, it's so aesthetically pleasing to watch out there on the bump. Love Holderman. Don't know if I'd rush him into the setup role just yet because he's oh, young. Yep. But, you know, I think if Trevor May comes back and he comes back looking like what we know Trevor May can look like, Adam Adovino continues pitching the way he has throughout the month of June. You know, if all these things factor in, Lugo's obviously struggled. So right now it's like I don't even consider him the short eighth inning guy. But Holderman in a sixth, seventh inning, whenever he's needed, a batter, two batters, an entire inning, doesn't matter. Love him. Love Juan Lopez. I mean, Lopez came in in one of the Astros games last week down in Houston and was great. And what was his reward? Naturally, he got optioned back down to AAA. But, you know, Lopez is good. Negosic, I'm not as big of a fan of, I don't think, as you are. Uh, you know, he got bailed out. His ERA is like 0.7. But he got bailed out by a scores uh, change. It was an error on JD, series. right? 
Yeah, they ruled it yeah. an error about two weeks after it happened that exactly. lowered his ERA from three and a half to 0.7. So yeah, I'm not as big on Nagosik, but Juan Lopez, Colin Holderman. I mean, I think these guys, I don't care what arm they throw with. I don't care if they're ambidextrous. I don't care if they're amphibious. <laughs> these are two guys that I think right now are just way better than Chase and Shreve in that bullpen, whether it's the fifth inning or the eighth inning, righty, lefty, doesn't matter. I, I, you know, I'd rather see you and me out there than Chase and Shreve right now. And that's saying a lot because you're getting a 50 heater from this bad boy on a good day. So, <laughs> uh, but going to kind of wrap things up, Joe, I know you talked about it before we started the recording. Let's have some fun with this and talk about, you know, there's been a lot of drama going on with Freddie Freeman and the Dodgers, right? I don't know yeah. if you guys have been following along. It's actually a really unfortunate situation because all offseason guys, to just reiterate, of course, Freeman signed that max deal with the Dodgers over the Atlanta Braves, and it looked like the Braves had screwed him over, that they didn't give him the contract they was deserving and looking for. Got Matt Olson, who's basically the best replacement possible, but man, oh man, it felt like that they did dirty to their Mr. Franchise. Basically, their David Wright of the Atlanta Braves is how I view Freddie Freeman, a phenomenal player. I cannot hate that guy, regardless on how much he's killed the Mets. However, yeah. he just fired his agent over this past couple of days, and the factor was is that his agent apparently never gave out the report on what was the final offer from the Braves, which is absolutely asinine to think about. So he wanted him money-wise to go to the Dodgers. He just fired his clientele, so now he's a new agency that he's uh, working with, that being Freeman. But, Joe, when you think about Freddie Freeman, it's just still so wrong to see him in a Dodgers jersey, isn't it? Yeah, it just doesn't look right. I mean, you know, like Mookie Betts didn't look right for a while, but I got used to that. Uh, Freddie, I, I don't think I could ever get used to him in a Dodgers uniform, and it made me – wonder and ponder and pose the question on Twitter, that blue bird app that we all love and hate simultaneously, made me want to know uh, from you guys, and feel free to comment below, which current MLB player looks the most odd or out of place in his uniform? So the first guy that came to mind, and maybe it's because I was watching the Padres Diamondbacks game while I sent this tweet out, Madison Bumgarner. I will never, ever, ever get used to Madison Bumgarner in a Diamondbacks uniform. The guy was meant to be a San Francisco giant for life. So to me, that's right up there with Freddie Freeman. Tyler, before we wrap the show up, what, what do you think, man? What, what just doesn't look right to you? Uh, for me personally, and also what doesn't look right is my camera just went a little blurry. So if you're watching this on YouTube, I apologize. I've been having all these darn issues, but discussion for another day. Um, For me, there's a couple guys that stand out, and it starts with Chris Bryant. I mean, to have KB in a Colorado Rockies uniform is just absolutely disgusting. I can't get behind it. It makes no sense. I, I'm just That move from the beginning never made sense to me. So let alone seeing him in a Rockies uniform does not sit well. I know that Josh Donaldson has bounced around, but I will always think of Josh Donaldson as a Toronto Blue Jay that tormented the New York Yankees. So to see Donaldson as a New York Yankee, clean shaven, that's disgusting to me. I always, I, I can't, I can't stand that one bit. Um, there's some other guys out there as well. If I'm trying to think on some others that are just popping around the top of my head. Correa in Minnesota. Yeah, Correa in Minnesota is just absolutely terrible. Uh, there, there's, there's a laundry list for sure of guys that just do not look right in these different uniforms, either as veterans that are, you know, or just, even Nelson Cruz with the Nationals. That doesn't feel right. That's another one. I, I can never think of Boomstick as a gnat. I mean, I will always think of him as the likes of, you know, for me personally, I will always think of him as a twin just because I'm a younger fan. I did not watch him back in, you know, his early heyday, starting off with the Rangers and then the Brewers, you know, all that fun stuff. So for me personally, I will think of him as most a twin. So to see him with the Nationals is not sitting right. Any, any final players that cross your mind before we wrap things up? I mean, he's bounced around a bunch in the past few years, but Andrew McCutcheon, when he left Pittsburgh, it's just, you know, seeing him with Philly, that really looked wrong. McCutcheon anywhere outside of Pittsburgh 
has just really been odd for me. I'm trying to think. Oh, you know what? Let, let, let's let's make it uh, Mets relevant. I, I think you actually texted me this earlier. Juris Familia yes, as a Philly. <laughs> I mean, that guy was, he was just, you know, we traded him to where? Oakland. Yes. Um, and that wasn't right. And now seeing him as a Philly, like Familia, I, I know Mets fans have had a love-hate relationship with him. I love Juris Familia, always have. When I was working with the Mets, just coincidentally, he was the guy who I seemed to bump into the most to the point where actually throughout the 2015 season, like every time I would see him, I'd usually be walking uh, through the bullpen after my dinner break. At the same time, he'd be just getting up to do some stretching or some light tossing. And it got to the point where we'd cross paths almost nightly. And, you know, he'd start dapping me up every night when he saw me. So maybe I've got a soft spot there for Familia. Yeah. But I love him. I wish he was still on this team. And seeing him, especially as a Philly, just uh, does not sit right. It definitely doesn't sit. I think it sits right for how Jarese is with his play. Not not to not to dumb down, you know, what you said. You have all the love in the world for him. But Jarese with the Phillies bullpen, I think it's fitting. He feels like a Hector Nearest 2.0 for me there. That's how <laughs> I've really compared the two a lot over the years. Okay. Um, but no less, yeah, he definitely does not look right, all things considered. And I think that's a great way to wrap up this dis- discussion, guys. This was episode three of the Believe in Queens podcast, presented from the Believe Network. Guys, if you want to make sure to subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff for the pod is greatly appreciated. Again, we're just three episodes in. You'll get consistent episodes here on YouTube on Wardy NYM, my YouTube channel, along where, 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 pardon me, wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Stitcher, whether it's Spotify, iHeartRadio, all that fun stuff. We are going to get you covered. We're going to have a former New York Met as our co-host in a couple episodes from now. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be an absolute blast. But make sure to let us know your thoughts, especially if you're watching YouTube in the comments below. How do you feel about today's pod? What do you like about it? And what players, again, stand out the most to you that just do not look right in their current uniforms at the MLB level? And other than that, guys, make sure to follow me on Twitter at WordyNYM. Subscribe to the channel, WordyNYM, on YouTube. And Joe, where can everyone find you, my man? Catch me on Instagram at Joe Serralo or on Twitter and TikTok at the Joe Serralo. And with this episode dropping on a Thursday, make sure you catch me tonight, every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on Sports Map Radio, my national radio show, Serralo Sports Talk. I'll see you then, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching, listening, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you guys again after the Rangers series. Let's go, Mets, baby. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.